0: Your Bibles to 1 Kings seventeen, and as you find that, let me tell you the story of a couple that were enjoying their fishing boat. They loved to go out often on the lake, and he became concerned that she had never really operated the boat before. And so, one afternoon on the lake, he just uh, left the wheel, sat down at the back of the boat, and said, "Honey." I want you to pretend that I have had a heart attack. And I want you to drive the boat to shore and to dock it. And she did it. So that evening he's sitting in front of the TV with the easy chair. And she comes in, sits down beside him, He grabs the remote, changes the channel, and says, Honey, I want you to go into the kitchen. I want you to pretend I've had a heart attack. I want you to fix supper and then wash the dishes. <laughs> How would you respond to the death of the most important person in your life? Some of you have already had to answer that question. Studies reveal that fear of death is the second greatest fear among people like you and me. You know what number one is? Fear of public speaking. Which cracks me up. That means that if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be the person in the coffin than the person behind the coffin talking about the person in the coffin. And the Bible says that the devil uses this fear of death to keep people in bondage. And it's universal. Bondage. Because I don't know if you've seen the latest studies, but the statistics are stunning. One out of one dies. <laughs> and so faith's final test is its response to life's final moments. I'm going to contend tonight that a living faith is, in fact, a death-defying act. So, chapter 17, let's read the first two verses together, starting in verse 17 of our story for the evening. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, let me just say right off the bat, the Bible is not a book filled with happily ever after stories. Have you noticed that? Because the Bible is not a fairy tale. It is full of the real stories of the lives of real people, and in real life, tragedy happens. See, maybe this woman, like a lot of other people, just assumed that because God had been blessing her lately, she was suddenly immune from suffering. I mean, here she is, she's almost starving to death. The man of God shows up, and now she can't run out of flour, and she can't run out of oil. And apparently she just assumes, as long as the man of God is in my house, nothing bad can happen in this house. A lot of people make that mistake. And if your faith is undereducated, then when tragedy comes, you're overwhelmed, particularly if it's death. And she responds to death the way many people do when they're overwhelmed first with resentment. What do you have against me? In times of sorrow, the flesh wants to assign blame. Whose fault is it? Why did this happen? You want to be mad at somebody. Call my lawyer. Somebody needs to be sued here. It's often why when a family has an unexpected tragic death, somebody winds up saying something that's really hurtful That later they regret. Because one of the reactions to death is resentment. We want to blame somebody. And the other is guilt. Did you come here to remind me of my sin? Nothing drives feeble mortality and flawed morality home like death. And you're overwhelmed in mourning because suddenly you remember all of your personal failings, particularly in the life of this person that's just died, and suddenly you can't go back and make it right. And so she says to the man of God, What have you got against me? You have to kill my son to let me know I'm a sinner? And her questions weren't fair, and her questions weren't helpful, but they were common, and they still are. Here's why. We try to defy by knowing why. Somehow we think death would be easier to handle if we could just make sense of it. If somebody could explain why this happened, if somebody could give justification, if somebody could just give me a good reason, then I could handle this. But our attempts at explanations often hurt more than help. I think probably in my years as a minister I've done as much counseling helping people recover from the damage of people that tried to explain death than I have from the damage of going through it. I cringe every time I hear some well-meaning Christian say to a grieving person, especially if they've lost a child, well, God just wanted another little angel in heaven. Like God does not already have myriads of angels, and He's got to kill your baby because He needs one more? The things that we say to try to give answer to death do more damage than death. When the bubonic plague was killing about a third of the population of Europe, the people thought it was carried by polluted air. The reality was it was a bacteria contracted from rats that the fleas got, and the bites of the fleas were carrying the plague. But they thought it was polluted air. And so one of the things they would do to treat you, if you were still strong enough to get around, is they would have people hold uh, hands and gather around rose bushes and just breathe the clean, sweet air. If you were too sick to do that, they would come and they would put flowers in your pockets so that you could smell that. If it got even worse, they would put ashes up your nose to make you sneeze and get the dirty air out. And what happened? You died. They didn't have the answers. What they did, though, was create a song your kids sing. Ring around the roses, pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, they all fall down. And most of our attempts to answer the question of death have about as much sense to them as nurture rhymes in the eyes of God. Here's what I've learned. The next time you need to go be with someone who's just had a tragic loss, presence and concern. Minister more than explanations. And so, Elijah says to her, verse 19, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms. He carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Please notice, Elijah did not try to argue with her. And he did not offer an explanation And he didn't respond in anger. He could have said, how dare you accuse me? If it wasn't for me, your boy would have died a long time ago and you'd be dead too. No. He just takes the boy, gets off into a private place, and then performs, up to that point in history, the greatest death-defying act ever. Let's read together. Verses 20 and 21. Then he cried out to the Lord. "O Lord my God. Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with? By causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times. And cried to the Lord. "O Lord my God. Let this boy's life. Return to Him. Now, I want to show you a way, or three ways, you can defy death. Way number one, take bold prayers to God's throne. And this prayer, he prays, is shocking for several reasons, and I'll just be real honest. Some stuff goes on in this story, I I have no understanding of. For example... The law of Moses clearly forbids a man of God from touching a corpse. He didn't just touch a corpse. He laid himself out on the corpse three different times. What's that about? Why do you got to do that for? Why can't you just pray? I don't know. Got nothing. But the most amazing thing is that to this point in biblical history, there has never been a story of anybody coming back from the dead. See, we read this story through the lens of the whole story of Scripture. We have these resurrection stories. But he didn't have those stories. He could not pray, Oh, Lord, like you did in the days of Abraham. Oh, Lord, like you did that time in the days of Moses. There was no precedent. What he's asking for here, nobody has ever asked for. It's almost as he lays across his boy as if he's saying, Lord, you just take some of the life that's in me and give it to this boy. And he probably looked foolish, but when you're desperate, you don't care how foolish you look, I'm reminded several years ago, there was a very, very distinguished man, member of our church, sweet guy, he's one of my best friends, but he's a man of decorum, he's always poised, and many people in our church, when they praise God, they hold up their hands, well he just never, he hated that. Way out of his comfort zone. He let me know it. In a nice way, but he let me know it. And then he got cancer. Guess what I saw him doing the next Sunday at church? He didn't care what anybody thought about how he looked. I don't tell you that story to say if you really love God, you hold up your hands when you sing. I tell you the story to say when you are desperate, you don't care how foolish you look or sound. And by the way, neither does God. Because God welcomes desperate people praying desperate prayers. One thing you need to know, you can be honest to God. God is not offended by stark, painful, brutal honesty. In fact, I think God would prefer, if we got a complaint, that we would take it to Him instead of taking it to other people. The Psalms are full of this kind of language. Over and over in the Psalms, you hear two prayers How long? Why? How long? Why? Psalm 6, verse 3, My soul's in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Psalm ten, one. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, this is not just prayer language. This was the worship language of Israel. These were Israel's songs. And these prayers and these songs are the attempts of the people of God to defy evil and doubt and press on deep, For a greater faith. Psalm 62 8, trust him in all times. O people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Let me tell you something God is big enough to handle your boldest and your hardest questions on both sides of the grave. When you're praying for the person who's facing death, and when you're praying because someone has passed. God can handle what you're really feeling. So tell Him. Truth of the matter, He already knows. He's not up there in heaven being shocked. said, I had no idea you were thinking that. Because He knows that what you need more than answers is the presence and the company of the one Who has the answers. So the first thing we do as believers to defy death. Is we take our bold, honest, stark, painful, brutal prayers and questions straight to God. Just like Elijah did. Second. We take time to consider God's track record. Because the great enemy of faith is forgetfulness. I heard a story of this city dweller that was out visiting friends in the country and they saw a farm where this dog was running back and forth and this dog was brilliantly guiding this flock of sheep into a corral. He was amazed. He asked the farmer, what's the name of that dog? And the farmer said, oh man, um, What's that flower? You know the one that's red? It smells sweet. It's got thorns on the stem. The guy says, Rose? Yes. Turned to his wife. Rose? What's the name of that dog? (laughs) The great enemy of faith, even more than immorality, even more than materialism, the great enemy of faith, is forgetfulness. See, Elijah is praying a prayer no one has ever prayed before, but let me tell you, he knew he was not praying to a small God because he remembered his diet from the last several years. He has been fed by a God that ordered birds to bring him breakfast. He's been fed by a God that kept a jar from ever running out of oil. And so, He anchored his death defying act in the presence with the memory of God's life sustaining acts in the past. You defy death by holding on to the memories of how God has worked in your life. Listen to what David says, Psalm 13. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fail. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for He has been good to me. How does David, In the face of death, cope. Not just survive, but thrive. He remembers how good God has been. Elijah chose to let his past experiences with God shape his response to the present. See, death has an amazing capacity to erase... Memories of God's faithfulness. I believe it's why God ordains memorials. And so if you visit our church this weekend, we're going to do something that we do every weekend. We're going to take a moment the service. We're going to take some bread. And we're going to take uh, some fruit of the vine. And we're going to remember the greatest salvific moment in history. The death and resurrection of Jesus. We do it every single week. The early Christians would sometimes do it every single day. Why? Because God knows our proclivity to forget. And He wants us to anchor and ground our faith in something immovable so that when tragedy comes, not if tragedy comes, so that when tragedy comes, we're rooted in something so real and so sure that God has already done for us that we don't let the present tragedy tell us who God is. We let what God has already done for us tell us how to cope with the tragedy you see mourning is inevitable but forgetfulness is a choice and the challenge is not to remember in the church building but to remember in the upper room so how do you defy death You take your bold prayers to God's throne. You take time to consider God's track record. And then one more thing. You take hope in God's promises. And I'll admit here I'm engaging in a little bit of speculation. But I keep wondering how did Elijah have the faith to pray a prayer this bold. A prayer no one's ever prayed before. And here's my personal speculation. God had said. The flour and the oil will not run out. That you and the boy and the woman will have something to eat until the rains come. Rains haven't come. I believe it was his conviction that God had made a promise that we were going to eat until the rain came to convince him. He was not out of line with the will of God to ask for the life of this boy. And so he did. And the Bible says, The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. You do not overcome death with answers. You answer death with overcoming faith. Write that down. You do not overcome death with answers. You answer death with overcoming faith. It's the biblical way to defy death. To cling to and to claim the promise of God. And so, you get to the New Testament. And Martha has lost the most important person in her life. Her brother Lazarus. What does Jesus say to her? Does He explain why? Does He give her explanations? No, He gives her a promise. Luke or John 11. He said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now here's the kicker. Do you believe this? The only real answer to death is a resurrection of Jesus. Some years ago, down in Brazil, a missionary was working with this tribe way back in the Amazon jungle, and they contracted a disease, and they began to get very sick, and some were even dying from it, and it was treatable. But the clinic was some miles away, and he was trying to take the tribe to follow him to the clinic to get the help they needed, and they came to the river And the people just stopped. Because they believed that evil spirits lived in the water. And he tried to tell them, but I came across this river. Nothing happened to me, but they wouldn't go. He went and stood out ankle deep in the water. Look, nothing's happened, but they wouldn't budge. He even reached down and splashed some water on his face. Nothing. And then he did something amazing. As they gasped, he jumped under the water. Disappeared for several seconds, swam underwater to the other side of the bank and popped his head up put his fist in the air. And they all began to clap because they realized if he has gone through safely, then we can too. And that's the biblical answer for how you defy death. Jesus has navigated the river. So Hebrews 2 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The promise of Jesus defies death on both sides of the grave. And so, some of you have heard me tell about my mother. She was having a, what she thought was just indigestion problems, but they would not go away, and the doctors gave her one medicine and then another, and finally the doctor said, we're just going to have to do exploratory surgery. So I went over to Plano with my brother to be with my dad. The doctor said it would take about two hours. The doctors came out in 30 minutes. Now, I've been going to hospitals long enough. I knew immediately, this is bad news. So the doctor told my father that my mother uh, had cancer all over her abdomen. They just closed her up. They said, there's, there's nothing we can do. And so they take my mom to post-op. And she's, of course, coming out of anesthesia. And we realize that We've got to tell mom. And I looked over at my dad. And for the, only the second time in my life, I saw my dad tear up. First time was the funeral of his mother. And I realized, he can't do this. So it fell on me to do it. So mom's coming too, and I take her hand. And I said, Mom, it's bad news. You've got cancer. And the doctor says you are in for a very tough fight. And my mom, she looked at me. She said, well, I can do that. And then she squeezed my hand. And she said, you know, son, either way, I win. She boldly defied death. Um, here's, what, here's what I want you to write down. When we defy, we testify. Look at how the story ends in verse 24. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you're a man of God. Ironically, all those times she's getting those miracle meals, she hadn't said it yet. But now I know you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Okay, your response to death is a testimony, okay? Understand that. The only question is what kind of testimony is it going to be? All of you that are my age, at least, will remember where you were in 1986, the day the space shuttle Challenger blew up. We were riveted in front of our TV sets. All seven astronauts killed. It was particularly tragic because Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher, was one of those who died. What a lot of people don't know was that the astronauts knew for moments before the Challenger exploded What was about to happen? There's audio recording of their last words. The other female astronaut on board is heard on the tape spewing profanities. Krista McAuliffe is heard reciting the 23rd Psalm. One faced death with curses. And one with the Word of God. The only question is what kind of testimony will you have when you face death? This was one of the very first things people noticed about the early Christians. They defied death. We have a letter by a guy named Aristides to a friend. It's dated in 125 A.D. This is less than 100 years after Jesus. Here's what he said. If any righteous man from among the Christians passes from this world, they, the Christians, rejoice and offer thanksgiving. And they accompany his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. I'm not saying it's our only witness, but I am saying it is perhaps our most powerful. Last week, one of my heroes passed away, Coach John Wooden. He wasn't my hero because he won ten national championships. He was my hero because he never compromised his Christian beliefs to be successful in the arena of sports. He would not even allow profanity on his team. Can you imagine that? And to the very end, his walk with God was real. So last week, you probably saw this on ESPN and other places. They're showing clips and stories about Coach. And this was one of the very last uh, interviews... He gave just a couple of years before he died last week at the age of 99. So watch this with me, please.
1: John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwood, had one college coaching job at UCLA for 28 years. He has stayed in this one city, Los Angeles, for 61 years. His last love was his first. His beloved wife, Nellie, who died 24 years ago. And your love really has lasted. You're still in love with her.
2: I'm very much in love with her.
1: Nellie passed away on March 21st, 1985. And on the 21st of each month, every month thereafter, Wooden would write her a love letter. No one got to see the letters, not even his family.
2: Well, let's say, honey, I miss you more than ever. My love is still there, and I'm still keeping my promise. There'll never be another.
1: It was the greatest love story never written. She was the only girl who would ever kissed at 14. They were married 53 years, and they had two children, seven grandchildren, and 11 great-grandchildren. How do you make love last in a marriage.
2: There's only one way. Truly, truly, truly love. Most powerful thing there is. It's true. It's true, it must be true. That um, the most important word in our language is love. Second is balance. Keeping things in perspective.
1: He was still teaching at 99, with a vision that could see around corners. Are you afraid to die?
2: No, I'm not afraid to die. How come? Why should I be afraid? That's the most wonderful thing that will ever happen. It it really is. Absolutely, I'm not afraid to die. Once I was afraid of dying... ...anymore. Once... I was afraid of dying, terrified at ever lying, petrified at leaving family, home, and friends. Thoughts of absence from my dear ones brought a melancholy tear once, and a dreadful, dreadful feeling of when life ends. But those days are long behind me. Fear of leaving does not bind me, and departure does not hold a single care. Peace does comfort as I ponder, a reunion in the yonder with my dearest one who's waiting for me there.
0: The Bible says death is an enemy, but it's not one you have to overcome, it's an enemy that has already been overcome so you can defy it. The resurrection of Jesus is the only answer we need. God bless you. Go enjoy the show.